All right, we'll be opening our Bibles this evening to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 together as we continue where we left off last time. And uh, don't you love it uh, when the text doesn't quite make it all on one screen? <laughs> so it's not quite that. We'll be in verse 4, and then it's on the next page. You've got to go to verse 7. I don't know if any of you it bothers as much as it does me, but something in my OCD spirit just, just drives me crazy. It doesn't all fit on one page. But we are beginning in chapter 2. We'll be in verse 4. We'll make our way down to verse 7. And as we're turning back to chapter 2, what a passage fraught with controversy. And we, we kind of mentioned this last time, and I want to come back to it again, because there are a lot of skeptics that come to God's Word, and particularly to chapter 2 of Genesis, and they, in a feeble-minded attempt, try to kind of, at the very beginning of the Bible, kind of prove in their own way that the Bible is full of errors and inconsistencies. And what they often do is they line Genesis 1 side by side with Genesis 2, and they say several things. They'll say, well, Genesis 1 tells the story of how the world began in six days. That's how we read it. But then, according to the skeptic, Genesis 2 has a contradictory account. Now, even the weakest skeptic must acknowledge as they read chapter 2 that there must be more to this account than mere chronology. There's something else going on. Now, why the skepticism? Well, they read, beginning in verse 4 and following, and see the account of the heavens and earth. And if you kind of notice there, as you're reading there, they'll see, well, here's the account of the heavens and the earth, but, according to the skeptic, there's a problem in verses 4 through 7 when it comes to this account. Let's read it and see if you can kind of catch what they're thinking is a problem. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. When, and here's where they immediately go, see, there's a problem we don't understand. When no bush of the field was yet in the hand and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. And they say, what? That can't be. That's not how that works. There's something wrong. All right? There's, a, there's, no, there's, there's, the, there's a creation of man before the creation of the plants, and, and there's a problem here in the skeptic's mind. Now, there's another different, there's another problem that they see. Come back and read it again. They say, there's, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the, and it says, the Lord God made heaven and earth. And, and now you'll see that there's a, a different, I'll zoom in here, there's a different name for God used. And the different name is this one that wasn't used in chapter 1, is the, the, the name Lord, capital L-O-R-D, and that's a new name for God. That wasn't in chapter 1. And this is the covenant name of God, and we know from Scripture that God gave this name to man in Exodus chapter 34. So how come this name is here if it wasn't given to man until Exodus chapter 34, according to the skeptic? Now, I know I just introduced all kinds of problems, and uh, we're going to work through those, and you'll come to discover that they're actually rather simple to solve, and we'll solve them over the course of this message. But by way of review from last week, let's lay side by side chapter 1 and chapter 2, and there are differences and there's distinctions and there's a real point to what's going on. Chapter 1, we read that God, in his creative wisdom and power, spoke everything into existence. That's what we read in Genesis chapter 1. 
What is the focus now of chapter two by way of what we looked at last week, even by way of introduction? What, what is going on in chapter two that's different than chapter one? The focus now comes to being on man. Man becomes the focus. Man is the crown jewel of creation. And so chapter one, we noted last time, is kind of the flyover, everything. God created everything in six literal days. He spoke it into existence. And now in chapter two, he's going to focus in on man. The Bible is certainly documented to prove that God created, but now there's a focus and the pinnacle of his creation, and the, the whole point made that man is made in the image of God, this is humankind, humankind now from chapter 2, throughout the rest of the Bible for that matter, becomes the focal point of the story. The great, if you use English phrases, this is the great meta-narrative of Scripture, that God cares intimately about mankind. And what we see is that God is deeply involved in our existence, and God is deeply involved on a, according to chapter 2 now, a fundamental, rudimentary level of who we are. And so the question then becomes, as we come to chapter 2, last time we were together, we just looked at verses 1 through 3, and we looked at the rest there, and I noted that I have a little bit of a beef with, the, with, with those who uh, split up the chapters and verses, and we know that they're not inspired, so it's okay to argue about this just a little bit. And I, my only argument was I, I would have preferred that this was up here in chapter 1, because it really kind of finishes out the thoughts of chapter uh, beginning at the end of chapter 1 with the end of creation of day 6, and then it goes into chapter 7. But now we come to the focus of chapter 2. And the focus of chapter 2, as we look at it in the verses today, is asking and answering this question, what is man? This is a very important question. There is certainly a modern crisis of identity, to say the least. There's a modern crisis of identity. And identity in this age has almost become an idol. Well, one theologian put it this way. Man has always been his most vexing problem. And so when a human being doesn't know who they are or what they are for or where they came from or what their purpose is, they're going to grasp at the very question of existence and their very understanding of purpose and morality will become distorted. This is a very real problem, a problem of identity. And modern man thinks only about himself, rarely accurately, and almost never about God. But as another theologian puts it this way, he says, wisdom, wisdom consists of two parts. Wisdom consists of two parts. And the two parts are knowledge of God. We need to know who God is. That's going to give us the true wisdom. And really, number two, knowledge of man. Really, when we say knowledge of man, we're talking about purpose. Why are you here? Where did you come from? What are you supposed to do? And all of those things, all of those related to man. And wisdom consists of knowledge of God, a right knowledge of God, and knowledge of man, a right knowledge of man. And if you really want to know God and know man, 
I can think of no better passage than Genesis chapter 2. Because Genesis chapter 2 gives to us a right knowledge of God and a right knowledge of man within God's plan. Specifically, even, the verses we're going to look at together. Let's read these verses in full and then we'll parse them apart. Begins in verse 4, it says, These are the generations of the heaven and earth when they were created. And in the day the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Let's go back to verse 4 and begin to parse it out. And we begin by noting a word that's immediately used, and it says, these are the generations. These are the generations. This is an interesting word. It could, some of your translations might sound, say, this is the account. This is the account. And this becomes an interesting word. I'm going to come over and I want to I just show you it, even if, if by, by happenstance on the screen uh, you can see the word that's used. And uh, it's a Greek, or a Hebrew word, excuse me, uh, toledot which could be translated a number of different ways. It could be translated the generations of, or it could be translated, this is the, this is the um, history, history of. And it's, it's a word that you're used to seeing if you come throughout the book of Genesis. In fact, in the book of Genesis, you'll find that this particular word is used ten times. This word is used and it, 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 it acts as a, a line of demarcation or, or, or in the Genesis narrative. As if to say there's, there's a beginning, uh, a new train of thought that's coming. This is one of the reasons why I think chapter 2 really begins in, chapter, in verse 4, because of this word. It's a line. It's a, it's a, it's a demarcation point. And there are, again, there are ten uses of this word. And in your English Bibles, when you come across it, in your Bible reading, nine of those times when you come to it, your eyes will begin to glaze over because of things that come after it. <laughs> Anybody know what comes after this word in nine of the other instances? Genealogies. Genealogies right? How many are willing to admit you have a hard time reading genealogies? Okay. If you have a hard time reading genealogies in private, imagine reading Scripture publicly in front of everybody and trying to pronounce all those words, right? That is really hard. So if that's you, we'll make Pastor Paul make sure he picks you to read the genealogy on Sunday, and you can figure it out, all right? Sometimes it can be really challenging, but th these are the generations of, and these are the genealogies that you can. And, and nine of those occasions are lists of genealogies, but not here. This is the only exception. There's no list of names to follow this one use. Genesis 2 verse 4 is the only exception, but it's not really an exception. <laughs> Why is it not really an exception? Because it's giving the history of how the earth was created. This is giving the history of the earth, how the earth was created. Who's to be named next? <laughs> At this point, two people, I guess. I mean, they haven't been formed yet, so it's not even in that sense an exception. This is the giving, this is the history of. This is the, this is the 
fountainhead. This is the beginning. This is where it all starts. This is, you could say, the shortest genealogy in the Bible. Right? It's the first one. So I guess it's an exception, but in some ways, not really, because it's going to begin to give this. And Moses is showing, of course, Moses, the author, the human author, is showing us where all this began. With that in mind, Derek Kidner, if you ever read, he has a helpful commentary on Genesis. He puts it this way. Man is now the pivot of the story. Again, remember, this word, toledot, is a, is a line of demarcation in the Bible. But now when it's first used, man is the pivot of the story. As in chapter 1, he was the climax. Chapter 1, he was the climax. Everything now is told in terms of him, speaking of man. And the narrative works outward from man himself to man's environment in logical, as against chronological order, to reveal the world as we are meant to see it, end quote. So this is not, as we come back, this is not some confusing attempt to rework creation in a different order. That's not what's going on here. This is a beautiful and dramatic literary creation that tells us exactly who we are in light of God's creation. And really, we could flip that around and say what the creation is in light of man. Now focus with it here for a moment in verse 4 because there's something interesting that highlights it. So if you look in in your text in Scripture, you'll find that there's a flip-flop of words. Notice verse 4. It says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Keep reading. And it says, in the day that the Lord made the earth and heavens. What's going on with the flip-flop? Now, obviously, it's inspired, so there is an intention here. But this is also a very common Hebrew poetry usage. And it's called, this, this usage here is called a chiasm. How many have ever heard of a chiasm before? Okay, several hands, all right? All right, in many ways, and even the Greek letter that begins with a chiasm, but many ways, this is meant to form an X. And what happens here, this is a powerful poetic tool, and the author is intending to show us something by putting these on the bookends to focus our attention on the middle. Our, our, our attention is to be in a chiasm. Our attention is to be drawn to the middle. And the middle is the point, really the emphasis of what he's trying to say. So a chiasm takes the beginning material, heaven and earth, puts it at the end, earth and heaven, much like an X is supposed to, and focuses our attention on the middle. So look at your Bibles. What's in the middle? God's creative work is certainly in the middle of making it all, but there is something more significant even just than his creative work that's in the middle. What's the apex of the middle? Yep. Man's not the apex of the middle just yet. The Lord God. The apex of the middle is this name that now is used that critics would say, oh, see, how did they come up with that name? It must be that there was a, a, a distri- uh, uh, an error here. 
No, this is a chiasm. This is intended to be this way. In the middle of the verse, in the focus of the center here, is the covenant name of God. But there are two names of God here. There is the name Yahweh, and then there is the name, which, by the way, I'll put it on the screen. So the name Lord here is the name Yahweh. So Yahweh is here. And there's the name God, which is the name Elohim. Now let's start with Elohim. Elohim is really the ordinary name for God. Not ordinary in the sense that God is ordinary by any means, but it's the name that occurs most frequently and repeated in Scripture. It's the name that they would use often, even in spoken language, uh, even in, amongst the Hebrews. And it's the name that was seen all throughout chapter 1. When you go back to read chapter 1, this is the name that comes up over and over and over. It's the only name that comes up in chapter 1 over and over and over. What is the reference to Elohim? What is the reference? He's the creator God. That's exactly right. So this name occurs, by the way, 35 times in chapter 1. This name, Elohim. But Yahweh is different. Yahweh is God's personal name. It's a name that speaks of God's self-existence. It's a name that speaks of God's self-declaration. But most importantly, it's a personal name. It's a covenant name. And it's given first in Exodus, as we already noted, in Exodus chapter 34. When, when Moses asks to, uh, in the burning bush incident, and you want me to go, and you want me to go talk to Pharaoh, and who am I supposed to say is, I'm speaking on? Who's, what is your name? And he gives this self-existent, self-determinative, but personal name. Tell them Yahweh sent thee. This becomes a very precious name for the Hebrew people. Moving forward, you come to discover that this name is the unspoken name in some regards. In fact, the Masoretes, as they would write out the text of Scripture in the Old Testament, for which we are thankful that we have the Masoretic text, just as an aside, we can do this every once in a while on Wednesday night, every translation of the Bible, be it King James, New King James, NASB, NIV, all of them share the same Old Testament manuscript family. So even the staunchest of King James-only people would still have to agree that it's still the same translation family from the Old Testament. And it comes to them from the Masoretes. And what would they do when they would write out the name Yahweh? Anybody know? They would, they would stop. They would wash their hands. They would purify themselves. And then only then after that would they come back to the text that they were copying and write this name. This is a very special name. So in the middle of this chiasm, what is Moses saying? Moses is saying that this was not some generic tribal deity who spoke the world into existence. This is Yahweh. So the God who is able to make a personal covenant with man is creating man. And so for the first time in all the Bible, we hear the personal name of God. And we are propelled not to just look at the cosmic power of Elohim. Elohim is the powerful creator God. We are compelled to look at the intimate, 
personal, covenant-keeping Yahweh. That's pretty powerful. And again, you almost chuckle then in light of that to think that a, a, a skeptic would look at that and say it's contradictory. Not at all. Moses is writing for a wholly different purpose, is he not? God is not just a powerful being that created everything like a wind-up toy, put it down and let it run its course and then stayed up in the heavens and just kind of watched his creation tinker down the road. The personal God of the Bible created man. That's what Moses is saying. So from the outset, we have an understanding about God and man's relationship. What do we immediately know about this relationship based on the centerpiece of verse 4? What do we immediately know about God and man's relationship? What's that? There's going to be a covenant. What else do we know? It's very personal. God wants a relationship with man. This is very significant. And then we read this in verse 5, and we already noted it, but let's highlight it now for just a moment. He says, when no bush of the field, uh, no, no, no uh, I'm going to make a better circle there, no, no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung. A lot of people struggle with verse 5. Because, they say, well, God created the plants on the third day right? That's when he created plants on the third day. Is God not contradicting himself here? How can he say that when there was no bush of the field and no plants on the field, yet on that time God created man? You see how that could be really hard for people to wrestle through. We must continue to read this in understanding, especially in light of Moses' use of his continued Hebrew poetry, but these two words in Hebrew in chapter 2 are very significant. The words for bush and small plant appear nowhere in chapter 1. And the reason for that is because what they mean. For, for sake of posterity, I'll at least show it to you on the screen. But the words that, that Moses now uses, uh, uh, the, the, the words for, for plant that he uses and, and, and the words for, um, for, for, for bush, or, or here it's translated herb, these two words do not appear at all in chapter 1. The word translated in the ESV here, bush of the field. This is the same word God used when he cursed the earth and said on the earth there would be thistles. It's the same word now translated bush. This is the very same word. Later in the text of, of the fall, we learn that God cursed the earth and there would be thistles that would come up. And the word translated small plant is the same word used in Genesis 3 verse 18 when he says, thorns and nettles would grow up. So thorns and thistles, and come back. And really he's saying, when no, and this is really what he's saying, no, immediately no thistles were there yet, and no thorns were there yet. What's going on here? This is a great foreshadowing in the immediate context, we are being reminded that things are not as they would be in our time yet. 
shrubs and weeds and thorns and thistles did not exist when God created man. You understand what he's saying? When did all that come? After the fall. So this is not a contradiction of Genesis 1. This is in keeping with Genesis 1. At the end of Genesis 1, we are told that all he created was perfect and it was good. We are to take away from that, as we noted, that there weren't weeds, there weren't thorns, and there weren't these things. Here we're told that when man was created, when God first created man, he created him in an environment where there were no thistles, there were no thorns, there were no shrubs, there were no weeds, you could say. That's what's going on in this verse. And something else also had not yet happened. What else had not yet happened when God created man? Rain. Rain. God had not caused it to rain on the land. Creation in verse 5 is being described here. And we noted that there's not been yet rain. When is that going to come? That's going to come after the flood. So that has not happened yet either. And there's a third thing that's still not yet happened. There was no man to work the ground. So creation is not fully and truly, according to this author, truly experienced until human beings have engaged with it in a direct, subjugating way. Creation is there, but Adam is not yet tilling the grounds. Adam is not yet working the fields and plucking the fruits. That has not yet happened. Why? Well, for one, that, one's, that last one's pretty easy. It doesn't exist yet. Right. So verse 5 presents to us an uncared for, untended, but perfect world in which creation lacked two main things. Yes, in addition to the fact that it does not have thorns and, and, and weeds and the like, it also lacked a man to cultivate the garden, and it lacked the rain that God would send. And without those two things, none of the world would be able to subsist. It wouldn't continue on. It needs those two things to subsist. And verse 6 it says, and a mist, immediately it says. Here's what it goes. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the earth. Now, this is a little bit of a controversial word as well. Some have understood this to be a canopy over the earth, like some kind of terranium, and rain would not be necessary. How many have heard that? I, I gave that explanation, and that's possible. The word is very difficult to sum here. And the word, come over here, uh, the, the whole face was uh, of the earth, and, and the word is, is used here in, in the, in the uh, Hebrew. And uh, it's a very difficult Hebrew word. Most Hebrew scholars would take this word here to refer to, not necessarily in this context, uh, not necessarily a, a mist, but some would say this refers to a stream. And the most common, I've seen it referred to as a river. 
Not that I don't, I, I do agree, by the way, that there was some kind of terranium effect. We read about that in Genesis 1. I don't believe that's what's going on in this context. Here's why. I believe this is referring to a river. There was no river yet. And again, I believe this interpretation, because it references back to what is Moses is highlighting. Moses in this context is highlighting an untended earth. Come to verse 14. And this is why I want you to see why I believe this is what's being referred to in this verse. It says, in the name of the third, and, and there's two things he mentions in, in, verse 14, uh, in, in verse 14. River is Tigris, and he meant ri the river Euphrates. So in verse 14, he's going to mention specifically Tigris and Euphrates. And what he's referencing, again, is this untamed world still. The rivers, the Tigris and the Great Euphrates, are undammed, they are unchanneled. So when God created man, he created an untamed yet, by man, subjugating form, world that existed in a perfect sense, but gave opportunity for man to irrigate the earth. Eventually man is going to channel the great Euphrates. He's going to channel the Tigris River and all of the like. And so again, we see if we come back to wisdom and our understanding of wisdom is a knowledge of God and a knowledge of man, we're understanding that at the very forefront, God created man, and this is amazing, with, with a cooperation in mind. Say, so is that true? Well, when it comes to salvation, I was looking at this in John chapter 16, and we're, we'll look at this in a couple weeks when it comes to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But the ministry of the Holy Spirit, in John chapter 16, Jesus tells his disciples, I, I need to leave. It is good for me to leave because I will send the comforter to you and he will be the minister of truth to you and bring you into, I'm paraphrasing here, but he's going to bring you into fellowship. So there's a, there was a fellowship that God created man to have that was broken after the fall. God's intention is to, through the plan of the Father, purchased by the Son, applied by the Spirit, bring man back into right fellowship. How can I have wisdom? Here's how you have wisdom. When you're walking according to God's plan. When we're reading Genesis chapter 2, we're reading a God who created everything, but he created it yet untamed with the purpose of having a cooperative focus with man. That was broken at sin. That is only to be restored at salvation and ultimately in glorification with heaven. And so again, we have this cooperative picture of God and man in Genesis chapter 2. And now in verse 7, we come to the key verse. Come to verse 7. We come to the key verse of what is going on. It says, And the Lord God, oops, that's not my highlighter tool. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. If you remember with us last time, and we were looking, we saw that Genesis 1, verse 27, the key to understanding the end of Genesis 1, 27, is uh, really the, 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 the nouns that were going on. We want to focus on the nouns in Genesis 1, verse 27. 
And here, in Genesis, uh, in Genesis chapter 2, in Genesis 2, verse 7, the key to understanding, oops, now, the key to understanding this passage in verse 7 is to look at the verbs. Very much like we did at the beginning of chapter 2. We looked at the verbs. So let's focus on the verbs. What's the first verb that we see in this text before us? What's the first verb? God, the Lord God, formed the man out of the dust of the ground. This is the same word, this is the same word that's used in Jeremiah chapter 18, referring to a potter forming clay. It's the very same word. This is one of the, this is just one more word, by the way, that flies in the face of any evolutionary theory. (laughs) God didn't, God, there are some that say, well, God just created through evolutionary processes. Well, this word says that he did not. This word says that he was intimately involved in the creation of man, like a potter. Listen to Psalm 139, verse 13. Thou didst from my, form me, from my inward parts, you weaved me together in my mother's womb. From the beginning, God was intimately involved in the creation of man. And notice what he says in verse 7, that in this forming, look, what, what, what were his materials? Instead of a potter using clay, he was a potter using dust. Dust. Form me out of dust. What, what, what would be the obvious application right here from the outset? Humility. <laughs> Martin Luther would often say that, Amer- that men are lumps of dirt. That was Luther's description of who we are. The body of man is formed of dust to the end that no man can glory in his flesh. He must exclusively glory in his creator. It would be excessively stupid to glory in your dirt. Just, it just would just be weird. And that's immediately from the outset, that's what it is. But there's another, another word that's used that, that God uses here. Not only did he form man, but what's the other verb that's used here? He breathed. God breathed into his nostrils. God has made man not just out of a, as a product of the earth, but by breathing a breath of God in him. Again, I quote from Derek Kidner. He says, there is such intimacy here. Breathed is a warmly personal word with face-to-face intimacy, the kind of a kiss. And the significance that this was an act of giving as well as making, as well as self-giving at that. End quote. Now the word breathed, as it's used here, this word, literally means, you could say, to puff or to blow. And I I give those to you because this word is forceful. We kind of think of breathe as kind of this soft, I don't know, I I guess in my view I was thinking like like formed out of the dirt, you know, maybe more of like a brutish formed, and then breathe is like kind of the gentle caress. And, and, And this is actually a very forceful word, this is, this is an understanding that, that he, he enlivened us. This is a forceful breath. Now, in light of all this, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, 
And man became, immediately we note, he became a living creature. And what is distinct now about man? What do we immediately know that's distinct about man from all the other animals and plant life? God was more intimately involved in his creation, certainly. What else do we know? We are made in God's image. We'll learn that even in other passages, although we've already seen that in chapter 1. What else do we know? The only creature that was formed. He's the only creature that was formed out of the ground like this. Everything else is spoken into existence. Not only the only creature, but the only thing you could say that was formed in this way. What else do we know? Yeah? He breathed to man the bread. Yes. Yeah. Man becomes a living creature. And this word living here is an eternality to it. Man exists beyond the here and now, is what he's saying. Now, man does not eternally exist this way, as some would say, especially in the Mormon faith, right? They, would, they actually believe that, you know, everything that is is out there and that we just need to populate it down here, but, you know, you've been around forever. That's not, okay, man does not eternally exist this way. At the beginning, it was just God. But when God breathed into man a living soul, you could say, then from the moment of creation, of that man and woman's creation, forward, there is an eternal being there. Now that, you know, and I I say this in all grace, right? Some say, well, will my dog be in heaven? Well, probably not. Say, that's disappointing. Well, not really. I got to tell you, you are not going to be disappointed when you get to heaven, (laughs) okay? It's just not going to be there. And and maybe God in his grace does give us our pets. I don't know. I have an opinion on it. And my opinion is when you get to heaven, you won't be thinking about your pets. That's, That's my opinion. But I will say that man is different than man's best friend, a dog, in this sense. You have a living soul, and you will live somewhere forever. And you need to think about that. The same author of Genesis as Moses wrote Deuteronomy. And and in Deuteronomy 18, he says, oh, that, we're talking about wisdom, "Oh, oh, that man were wise that he would consider his latter end. It's not morbid to think about death. The Bible says it's wise. Because there's one guarantee. The one guarantee in life is that you will be somewhere forever. I don't know when, some of us, maybe, will never see the grave because God could come back through the clouds right now and we, you know... We don't, have to worry, or we don't have to worry about any of that stuff, or at least those after us don't. <laughs> there may be other of us that we see the grave, but it won't be long because we're, we're going somewhere. Friend, it is wise to consider where you will spend eternity. And we know from creation's account that God wants to have a cooperative, close, intimate fellowship with man. What happens in chapter 3 is that is broken. We find at one point God is walking with men and women in the cool of the garden. There's this fellowship. There's this cooperative focus. I wonder if he was just as excited, I think he was, with them when they said, look at this. 
we just, we just picked this fruit, it's delicious. And, and then we, we planted it and another one grew. And, and look at this, you know, I don't know what they were all doing. It's just, just amazing even to imagine. And amazing just to think that God would allow man creativity, to allow man to do things with his hands. Because certainly God could have continued to just speak everything into existence, but he wanted man to have that fellowship with him and this desire for creativity, which would become an ongoing reflection of his own creativity. What a beautiful picture. But then there was sin. And now God comes into the garden, and he's asking Adam, where where are you? And certainly he knew where Adam was. But Adam was hiding because there was a brokenness. We come back to our beginning discussion and there's this question around identity. Everybody wants to know, like, what am I supposed to do and where am I supposed to do? Man, you make a beeline back to God, you find that fellowship with God, and all of a sudden all of life's purpose comes into focus because I am in a cooperative fellowship with the Godhead. How great is our God? Well, he's pretty magnificent. But how wonderful it is to think that the Godhead himself wants to have fellowship with man, his creation, his fallen creation at that, because man is different. It is robbery to leave this and thinking only of the identity of man. It is robbery. It is robbery to go through life thinking only in terms of what I can do with my life and what I want to do. Just a couple applications. Number one, do you know where you're going to spend eternity? I hope you do. Number two, don't ask yourself, what do you want to do? In fact, even frankly, I mean, this is an Awana night. Don't ask a child or a teenager, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's an inappropriate question. Ask, what does God want you to do one day? That's an appropriate question. And, and I think it's wise for us as adults to begin to instill that into the hearts of young lives by not asking, what do you want to be when you grow up? Because it doesn't matter when you become a saved person what you want to do. It matters what God would have you to do. And finally, with the life you have, just if you are a believer, you get to be a part of God's cooperative program on earth in every workplace that you have. If you know you're in the center of God's will, in your workplace, then do it to all your ability, all to the glory of God. And that's why 1 Corinthians says, whether you're eating or drinking or whatever you're doing, do all to the glory of God. And I like to even add, you get to do that. Just think about how wonderful that is. You are a living creature that God stooped down, he formed, he breathed into you, he gave you a living soul because he wants to have fellowship with you. Questions, comments as we close this evening. Answered everything. One fell swoop. <laughs> so is this the first use of CPR in the Bible? <laughs> yeah, you could say that. I guess you could. He said, "Is this the first use of CPR in the Bible?" In some measure, I guess it would be. Uh, yeah. yeah. Any others? Yes. Having a soul. Yes. And always going forward. Yeah. There and through eternity, whether you end up. Yeah. You will, and everyone says, I, I, you will, all of us will, will recognize God for who he is one day. Whether it is in hell, recognizing that I rejected him on earth, 
or in heaven rejoicing that I've accepted him as my savior, but you will recognize God for who he is one day. That is a guarantee. Tom? I noticed the last word is translated um, soul in the King James, being in the NASB and the CSB, and creature here in the ESV. Yes. you want to comment on the... Sure. Uh, is it one of those things where the Hebrew word means so much more and there's just no one English word that captures it all? Or? There's certainly an element to that every time, right? <laughs> I mean, that, that is true for so much of language, even just language from our English languages to another language. Can, you can have that happen. There is always something that I think leans more towards the correct, more clear interpretation. And in this particular case, I think soul communicates a little bit better. I would say being also communicates it pretty well because being that, you know, you don't end a sentence with a preposition, but this one does uh, because it, it almost communicates that it just keeps being. And, and that's it may, maybe in that stricter sense that communicates a little better. I don't, I don't, yeah, it communicates that eternality. I don't like the ESV's creature here. I, I, I feel like it, it, it pairs closer to uh, an evolutionary worldview than I'm comfortable with. I understand why they did it, uh, but I, I also don't like it. And so you say, well, what do you do? Well, that's why we've said many times, read with breath, right? Uh, and, and make sure that you read with breath. Francis? Yes, the angels are also considered beings. In a different way, though, because angels, uh, and that, that's what it's a different word. Uh, no, it's a similar, there is an eternality to the angels. But the angels aren't ones that are going to be glorying God in heaven like man is. Angels are not the apex or focus of God's attention like mankind is, which is interesting in its own regard. Yeah. Is, that the word, is that word nephesh in there, or is that different? I'd have to look it up. I'd have to look it up. Yes? So where Jehovah, the name Jehovah come when the Jehovah Witness claim that um, we pick God names and man, every other name, his name specifically Jehovah. Where did that come from? So the Jehovah's Witnesses say it's on, his name is only Jehovah. Is that what yeah. you're saying? Yeah, I, uh, well, it comes from their Watchtower magazine. <laughs> uh, but it doesn't come from Scripture. Yep. Yeah. yeah. When they would come and, t- and translate it, yeah. to purposely not say Yahweh, yeah. spell it out, yeah. they would put it in the, le- the, the vowel from Adonat. Yeah. And then when they were translating it into English, they just assumed that was another translation and they came Jehovah. Yeah. It's actually just a mistranslation yeah. or transliteration yeah. of Jehovah. Yep. Yeah, I mean, the, the Hebrew for Yahweh is um, just Y H W H. Um, if you see a, a meme, by the way, about it, like how it's breathed and all that, have anybody seen that? That's silliness. Oh, that's, yeah. not, that's not true. That's not true. That's silly. Um, but uh, uh, th- this is, uh, Yahweh is this way. Any others? I was thinking about Ephesians uh, 2.10, you know, how God will create it for his work. You know, it says, uh, yeah. for we are his work, we should create Christians for good work. You know, just think about what you just mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. Great verse. The verse that he just referenced is Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for or unto good works. Uh, that, that is such an important verse, especially for like Baptist churches like ours. Where we'd say, we, we are not saved by works, not of works, not of works, not of works. Which is true. We are not saved by works. We are saved unto good works, however. Once we're saved, there should be a radical transformation to work for God. Absolutely. 
And that comes to that cooperative aspect of this wonderful fellowship we get to have with God. With God. Any others? These are great. All right. Once again. Oh, Kurt. Yes. No small plant. Yes. And then we come to the little ranch and work the ground, working the ground and soil for children. So no. So so work here, work is not part of the fall. Hard labor is part of the fall, but work is not part of the fall. God created Adam to work, and uh, the, the hardness, the sweat of the brow, becomes a part of the fall. But work itself is not part of the fall. And, 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 and I'm sure even in your career, you've, you've seen that to be true in your own life. Like there are certain things that is work that you genuinely enjoy. Right? You, you find a fulfillment there. That's true. I mean, that, that is what God created it to. It's in verse 15. It's in verse 15? Oh, oh, of chapter 2. Yeah, the, the toil. Yeah, yeah, verse 15 of chapter 2, she said. Yeah, there you go. There it is. The Lord God took and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So this is pre-fall. Thank you, Francis. There you go. All right. Wonderful discussion this evening. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for the time we can spend in your word in Genesis and continuing to study its truths. Lord, may we apply it even in our own lives that we get to have this, if we're believers, this renewed fellowship, this close intimacy with God who created us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you. You are dismissed.